This is Kevin Conroy, the voice of Batman. And you're listening to the DCAU Review, hosted by Cal and Liam, streaming at DCAUReview.com and on your favorite podcast app. Happy Halloween. It's an absurd holiday. Oh, yes. Putting on costumes and striking fear. Quite absurd. Halloween in Gotham is the perfect time for revenge. What's happened? Johnny Beatty was murdered tonight. And only the Dark Knight <laughs> can unmask the killer. Nice outfit, Bats. Batman, the long Halloween. Trick or treat. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 182 of the DCAU Review. I am one of your hosts, Cal, and with me, my good brother, good friend, and the man that runs our Twitter account. That's right, it's Liam. Liam, welcome to episode 182 of the DCAU Review. That's right, we are in the spooky season, of course. Just one day away from uh, Halloween at the time of recording. I mean, I'm, I mean, the show's live. Um, Always. Whenever but, anybody presses play, we just have to restart again. That's right. But as of this time, it's uh, it's the day before Halloween. And so we thought, what better thing to bring you than a, a somewhat themed review? And uh, we have that for you here today. And we will continue this theme next week. But today we are talking all about the Batman The Long Halloween Part 1 uh, movie that was released just this past, uh, this past summer on, uh, on Blu-ray and, and now available for streaming. There you go. On, many, on your favorite streaming service, HBO Max. It's a wonderful streaming service. <laughs> uh, not available in all countries. Not also an official sponsor, but would gladly take that sweet sweet aol money or warner brothers <laughs> money or whoever owns that whoever AT&T? owns that. at&t that's what i meant not aol aol <laughs> is not a company anymore anyway all right uh yes we are indeed uh reviewing a, a movie and this is only like one of the f- few times that this has happened i think probably once or twice in uh in the episodes we've covered thus far i know we did justice league uh, versus the fatal five we also did superman red sun right after that had come out but generally we let some time lapse before we uh we tend to do reviews here liam but this one as you said very relevant for several reasons uh the second part was released in july so we have both parts available here uh as mentioned it is the spooky season it's themed it's the fifth month of our or fifth week of our month which means we tend to do an elseworlds tale as it is plus uh coming up in just uh in a few short weeks here we ha- actually have a brand new long halloween special that's being released by dc comics uh, as sort of a companion piece i assume or maybe a continuation of some of the original storylines here which were done by jeff Loeb and tim sale which uh, if you've been living under a rock or perhaps if you just haven't, uh, you, you've probably at least heard of Batman Long Halloween prior to this being a animation adaptation. But uh, if you didn't, it's probably regarded in maybe top three, maybe top two best Batman stories of all time. You know, it's ranked pretty high up there with maybe, you know, The Dark Knight Returns, Batman Year One, maybe Hush. And then you have Batman Long Halloween. It's a it's a pretty famous uh, book, Liam, set of set of issues that's been released several times as graphic novels. And uh, one of the things that I was looking forward to with talking about this is, uh, you know, this is one of your favorite 
books of all time, just from a writing standpoint. And certainly I think the artwork is, uh, is near and dear to you as well. Yeah, absolutely. This is, um, this is one of the first comics that I feel like when I was maybe, maybe I, I think I was just the right age. I was probably 14 or 15 and maybe was starting to feel like I, I was beginning to maybe grow out of superheroes and stuff and, and such as, as silly as that sounds now to be in my, in my late twenties talking about superhero cartoons every week. But uh, at the time, you know, you, you're getting a little bit older and you're into your teenage years and maybe you think you're, you're growing out of certain things. And I remember reading this and just being so, taken with it and so wrapped up in this wonderful mystery and this you know very sort of moody and atmospheric art that uh, that tim sailor it may be tim solly i've heard it pronounced both ways so okay apologies if it uh, if, if whichever one of us is pronouncing it wrong i, I do <laughs> we both apologize <laughs> tim, but, we'll uh, just call him tim we're yes, we can but, pretend uh, like we're on our first base name basis for yes it. but uh yes tim's uh tim's incredible art and uh I will also mention the colorist. I believe his man named Gregory Wright, but it's a uh, it's a great great mystery story, and it, I feel like it helped me deepen my appreciation for what these stories could be, and and sort of how how you could weave uh, a tale that you have those big over the top superhero uh, heroics and 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 co- garish costumes and all that stuff. It doesn't shy away from that side of of a superhero comic, but you can also, you know, kind of look in a little bit deeper as, uh, you know, as, as you not only deal with Batman's struggle to try to try to find the killer, but also, you know, the struggles of kind of some of our other main characters like Harvey Dent and Jim Gordon. So I think it really did, uh, it did help me appreciate the superhero comics as a storytelling uh, medium a little bit more. So yeah, it's, it, it holds a very near and dear place in my heart. And uh, I was obviously very, very excited. I know there had previously been uh, an adaptation of another of Mr. Loeb's uh, Batman stories, that of course being his classic with uh, Jim Lee on the pencils and Hush. And that one tended to deviate uh, by the end, uh, deviated a bit more from the, the source material than I think a lot of people would like. So I, was, uh, I wasn't sure what to think. When I when I heard this was being adapted, especially when we kind of saw got a look at the art style and saw that it appeared to sort of be tied in with some of the other recent uh, DC animated straight to video uh, movies like the the Superman one and the recent uh, Justice Society movie that came out as well when it appeared that this might also be part of its own little uh, shared universe. It, uh, you know, I think there were people that are, were a little concerned that maybe this too would begin to deviate, but uh, we can get into how well this holds up to the, to the comic books and where it deviates and maybe some ways that it, that it, uh, it deviates for the better. But uh, before we get into that, Cal, and we get into our plot, I must, of course, start us off with the official IMDb synopsis for this week's uh, episode. Of course you must, because it's a it's an episode that we're reviewing, or mo- in this case, a movie that we're reviewing. So we must get the official synopsis from IMDb, the Internet Movie Database. Which, by the way, this segment still free to be sponsored. So if you'd like to sponsor this segment, uh, you know, shoot us a slide into our DMs, if you will. <laughs> On, uh, on social media at DCAU Review. But yes, Liam, this movie was originally released on June the 22nd, 2021. As we mentioned, not even a close to being a year old just yet. But uh, yes, uh, let's hear that official IMDb synopsis. 
That's right. This is for Batman, the long Halloween part one, which was uh, written by Tim Sheridan, of course, based on the comic by Jeff Loeb and Tim Solly or sale directed by Chris Palmer with music by Michael Gatt and animation by edge animation co. And that synopsis reads as such. Batman investigates a murder spree that takes place on holidays. Oh, no. Come yeah, on. one of the worst. One of the worst we've ever done. Come on. Like, that's 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 on the cover. Like, that's basically like, yeah, you can pretty mm. much figure that out from reading the first two sentences of the uh, of the Wikipedia article. Like, come on, guys. That, that's an F. I'm sorry. That, that's lazy. That's pure laziness. Somebody, yep, that's... somebody that's a, a contributor to IMDb, go in there immediately and edit that and add Please some more sustenance please because goodness gracious but yes that does leave <laughs> us to our, our work being a bit cut out for us but uh that is that is sort of our titular our, there there is a holiday killer as we come to find out but uh this is obviously a lot deeper than just a a new serial killer arriving in gotham city as it also involves several of the sort of classic batman crime family the sort of the mafia side of the gotham city underworld with characters like uh, with Carmine Falcone, of course, from the uh, from the Frank Miller Batman Year One story that, of course, has gone on to appear in other mediums uh, like the Christian Bale Batman films and things like that, uh, as well as some of the other uh, mob bosses and sort of their their sort of beginning to die out and give way to to these uh, this new breed of super criminal and. There, so as one empire is crumbling, uh, Batman makes it makes uh, has has to make some new friends in order to try to keep the city from falling into complete chaos. Yeah, and that's that's truly what the whole uh, and and you know we can do the kind of comparison throughout you know ver- the original source material versus what the what the movie ended up doing here. But yeah, the the whole stories you mentioned sort of in our intro here is about these three characters and ultimately this pact that Batman makes with Jim Gordon and Harvey Dent. Harvey Dent, of course, the district attorney. Jim Gordon, uh, the captain, I believe he is. He's not commissioner mm-hmm. just yet. He's Captain Jim Gordon. So uh, still in, in charge of a lot of the police. And their their job here is to is to do what they can to, to stop the violence and begin cleaning up the city. Um, I think it's pretty much encapsulated in the movie uh, where in this initial interaction between that we see between Bruce and Alfred and uh, they're sitting here in, in, in Bruce's study and just above them is the picture, the classic photo or a painting of Thomas and Martha Wayne. Master Bruce, happy Halloween. Is there coffee? In the study, sir. A Miss Kyle telephoned. She said she was checking the number you gave her to make sure it's real. The gates are open. We haven't seen a trick-or-treater in years. We won't see one tonight. Hardly worth the security risk, wouldn't you say? Respectfully, sir, if our security is dependent on $600 worth of iron alloy... This city has fallen, Alfred. Then we must endeavor to lift it up again, Bruce. 
And that's sort of what these three men have come into a pact to agree to do. And that is sort of uh, from the inside out here to try and derail some of the the corruption and the, the stranglehold that these mob bosses have over the city of Gotham. And uh, in order to do that, uh, they begin stepping, <laughs> stepping on some toes uh, and sort of, I don't know, blurring the lines a little bit. We have a, we have one scene early on in the, in the movie where, uh, which was faithfully adapted from the uh, source material where the uh, Falcone uh, is, is moving some of his fortune, is having difficulty laundering some of his money. So there's a warehouse that Batman is led to by uh, Catwoman of all people to sort of help him out and discover this warehouse full of cash. And in a scene straight out of uh, The Dark Knight, we mm-hmm. have this mountain of mountain of cash and uh, Batman and Harvey Dent uh, with Catwoman standing by have to kind of decide what they're going to do because uh, they realize that with the amount of people that Falcone has uh, on his payroll, that even if they were to to turn this these funds over to the police at this point, that the funds will be right back in Falcone's hands shortly thereafter. So it's interesting because here in, in this storytelling from the movie, we have Batman introducing a coin to Harvey Dent as a way to sort of uh, help him decide the, to, which way to go within this gray area. They, he literally pulls out a coin and convinces Harvey to select, you know, ch- choosing whether to burn this money or to do what they were originally going to do and turn it over to the 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 police. And what what uh, ends up happening is they end up apparently it was heads and they decided to burn it. So uh, the the money is then burnt. And this, of course, is a way to send a message to the Falcone family. And Falcone's immediate response is to decide that he's going to show up to Harvey's house and, and retaliate. And that's kind of where we get things kind of kicked off here and start learning some more uh, about Harvey Dent's role in all of this as well. Yeah. And that, uh, that brings us to maybe one of the, the first deviations, I think, from the from the book is that uh, more focus is is put on on Harvey Dent's uh, home life. Um, his char- his wife Gilda is a character in the in the Long Halloween, but she's she's kind of uh, you know just kind of the doting the doting wife. Um, she's uh, she's uh, she's not, not not a particularly developed character, at least not at first in the first few issues. So they kind of put on the spot that you know again, which I think is something as as uh, you and I who have been reviewing Batman the Animated Series and these other DCAU shows for years now uh, would note is that, you know, much like in Batman the Animated Series, they sort of established pretty early on here that long before, you know, the spoiler alert, the, you know, half of his, half of his body gets burned and he, he turns into Two-Face, um, that he already sort of has these, these issues, both not only in his, you know, not only with his own, uh, you know psychiatric issues but uh, you know his wife clearly has has some as well and there's this sort of deep unhappiness we we sort of find out later that at least part of it is due to her her inability to conceive and uh and that this has put quite a bit of strain on their relationship and so you you see much like batman himself much like uh you know that we have a scene also of gordon sort of disappointing his kids and and his wife on uh, on Halloween night, as they were all sort of, it's, you know, everyone's sort of t- 
we see our, our three main heroes here all sort of leading these double lives and all sort of, you know, letting their personal lives suffer as a result of, uh, of, of their duty and of their, their crusade to, to stop Falcone and then the rest of the criminal underworld. But uh, that of course does lead to uh, seemingly in retaliation for the death of, uh, of the Roman's nephew, uh, Harvey Dent returns home to his wife only for the house to explode. And, uh, and uh, that, uh, that, that leads to a, a pretty dramatic sequence there as, as we're not quite sure who is responsible, though it appears that perhaps this is not the work of uh, Falcone, at least not directly, and that it might be uh, another one of uh, the, the mobs in Gotham City, that being in this case the, uh, the triads or the, the Chinese mafia of some sort. And that leads to uh, Batman having a, a pretty cool fight. We'll definitely talk more about in uh, in visuals as he tracks down. That's uh, that's kind of another deviation from the uh, from the book. Where in the book it was the Irish mob uh, that were that uh, that put the hit out on um, that put the hit out on Dent or that carried out the hit on uh, on Dent and and here it's uh, here it's here it's the Chinese mob and. Uh, yeah, that leads to Batman uh, having a confrontation with a certain sewer-dwelling zombie. That, uh, <laughs> that once again is uh, is that, and that that's one of those things where I wouldn't have been surprised if that got completely cut because there is a moment in the book where he's chasing down this this uh, this mobster and he runs into the sewers and runs afoul of Solomon Grundy and and Batman and Grundy sort of have this brief scuffle, um, but. They, uh, they did include that still, and and Bat, uh, Batman's actually able to kind of talk Grundy into letting letting him take uh, this this Mickey Chen into custody and letting him take him away. And we get uh, some some interrogation there where we realize sort of it's not just that they went after uh, Falcone's money that's the issue, or that that Dent is this uh, this great crusading DA. It's that they actually believe, or it seems that it's becoming a nasty rumor within the Gotham underworld that that uh, Harvey Dent is uh, leading a double life, not only as this crusading district attorney, but also he might have been the man who pulled the trigger and killed the Roman's nephew. So, uh, and that is not only gets the attention of of the Gotham City crime families. But it also gets the uh, attention, as we find out soon, of a certain uh, clown. That's right. And that's sort of the culmination. And it's interesting, you know, we have this this killer that they begin calling the holiday killer because he's murdered people on various different holidays. As we open up the the movie, it's opened up, as you mentioned, is uh, Carmine Falcone's nephew is killed in cold blood and in his own bathtub. And this was reportedly just hours before he was going to become a state's witness and kind of flip on the Falcone family. So there's mm-hmm. this whole intrigue and mystery as to, and, and people with multiple people with motives as to who could possibly be behind this. Three murders on three holidays. Each of the victims of Falcone associate all shot with the same type of untraceable gun. No witnesses. Suspects? Salvatore Moroni. His family's always been second to the Roman. He's notoriously ambitious. But he's killed Falcone's men in broad daylight. Why the cloak and dagger holiday business? Carla Vitti, Falcone's sister, runs their Chicago operation. 
She could be making a play for control of the family. By killing her only son on Halloween? She is a criminal. And he is a homicidal maniac. The guard testified that he escaped before the first murder. The Roman himself. Johnny Vitti was about to flip. And Mickey Chen could testify that Balcone ordered Dent's murder. He had motive to silence them both. But why kill his own bodyguard? May I ask why you're keeping the fifth suspect off the board? Because I don't like it. But it fits, doesn't it? It's interesting because here, at least in the in the the film adaptation here, or the the animated adaptation that we have here, it's really delving into the psyche of Batman having to become a detective there's more than one discussion that he has with jim gordon and especially this one interaction there's a good cop bad cop scene as you mentioned with this mickey chen where they're trying to grill him and at the end of it after not really being able to get any information out of him gordon sort of chastises batman to say that while he's good at bringing in the criminals he has a lot to work on with the detective side of things and being able to get information and to sort of accumulate uh clues and and figure out what things are doing and later on in the bat cave also there's this conversation that batman has with alfred where He's trying to piece things together, but he's so very reluctant to be this detective. He even says that he thought the job was simply going to be cleaning up the streets, not having to put Mm -hmm. those together. So that's really one of the main tension pieces that we have here is Batman really being stretched, at least this seems to be early on in his career, where he hasn't had to have been a detective before. And as you mentioned, so we have this killer that's been killing on the holidays and then right around Christmas time, I, I guess uh, a certain clown has gotten wind of what's going on and is not too happy that somebody else might be trying to steal his thunder. So uh, Batman actually goes to Arkham Asylum with uh, with Commissioner Gordon and begins interviewing the Calendar Man, who, of course, would be my first suspect if somebody was mm-hmm. killing people on holidays. But uh, uh, Calendar Man is, in fact, in Arkham. And it's interesting because he mentions not only and, and lets Batman subtly know that the Joker may have been have uh, escaped Arkham, but he also seems to point the finger towards Harvey Dent. This is a waste of time. I told you to bring Mr. Dent. He isn't safe out there. The TA who put you all in Arkham? Half the patients here would kill him on sight, so I'd say out there is the only place he is safe. Perhaps. Or perhaps he doesn't know you're here. Perhaps. The district attorney is a suspect. We learn as he's sort of discussing the case with Alfred that, uh, uh, you know, they they have not allowed Harvey Dent to have a gun because of his psychological profile. There was something he alludes to that came up in their psychological profile that prevented him from being able to obtain a gun license. So there's lots of little breadcrumbs being strewn along here to saying, hmm, maybe Harvey Dent does have motive, but then you have lots of other things being thrown in also. Yeah, yeah. there's there's a few, as you mentioned, throughout there that, uh, that Batman and Alfred are going over and one of the other uh, the things that this one does that the books really did not do is uh, it establishes that uh, that Carmine Falcone is, as again, as we said, is sort of this aging mobster that's 
sort of slowly losing his grip on power. And, you know, the, the opening scene in both the book and in the movie is him speaking with Bruce Wayne, trying to get him to come on board as a new quote unquote business partner should sort of try to solidify, you know, re-solidify his power. Uh, and, you know, he mentions that he and, uh, and Bruce's father had worked together previously. We find out later that they had, they had created this, uh, this clinic for, uh, you know, for, for children in, in sort of some of the poorer parts of Gotham city and, and, uh, and, but, but it's sort of noted that Carmine doesn't really feel that he has an heir apparent as his, his one and only son is this, uh, this sort of skinny, uh, nerdy type uh, named Alberto, who is uh, more concerned with doing crosswords and is sort of being kept at arm's length by his father, who who doesn't see him as uh, as being worthy of, of being involved in the family business. And you see them have a you know their the, the contention in their relationship begin to uh, to mount as well. And so that that kind of leads to all of these different threads of could it be this guy? Could it be? Could it just be the Joker? As you know, as, as after the Joker confronts uh, Fal- uh, Falcone in his in his own bedroom on Christmas, uh, as he's leaving, it's seemingly uh, Falco- one of Falcone's bodyguards is gunned down in the street, and there's along with a snow globe is left, uh, you know, a bunch of of Joker cards as well. So, could it just be the Joker? Could it be Falcone himself, or his sister, or this other rival mob boss, or or could it be Harvey Dent? Or as as we begin to they as they sort of lead you down the path once more as we get to the final act as as the Joker is preparing to sort of dive bomb and poison uh, sort of uh, Gotham Square when you know perhaps tens of thousands of people are are down there celebrating the New Year's he prepares to uh, sort of gas them all with Joker toxin just because he he says he thinks that about half the city is down there. And since he wants Holiday dead, he's got about a 50-50 shot of killing him, which I do think is a pretty great like Joker logic thing. That's a, that's something that's carried over from the book. But as far as just like a quirky thing, just like a weird thing that the Joker would do or the, like the logic behind why he's doing it. It's not just because he's because he's a homicidal maniac who's crazy. I mean, that is part of it. But, but, it, but there is this weird twisted logic in his head of, well... By law of averages, I have about a 50-50 shot of getting the guy without ever having to lay eyes on him. So, What are you trying to prove with this stunt, Joker? Prove? Stunt? Joker? No, wait, that one's right. <laughs> Why did you kill Johnny V? What? And Mickey Chin and Milos Grappa. <laughs> you think I'm Holiday? Oh, puppet, I didn't know you cared. <laughs> <laughs> Of course I'm not Holiday! If I were him, why would I be trying to kill him? Kill him? He's the competition! And like the corn kernel always says, I won't be number two. If it's Holiday you want dead, then why gas everyone in Gotham Square? Half the city's down there, which means Holiday either is or isn't. I have a 50-50 chance, and if I fail, well, at least I've killed a lot of innocent people. <laughs> I love that. I love that as like a Joker, a Joker motivation. I think that's pretty clever, but... 
in the ensuing battle, there's uh, the sort of an illusion that the Joker makes that makes Batman realize that perhaps the killer is not anyone that he had uh, that he had thought of before, but the fact that it, it could be uh, Falcone's son Alberto as well. And uh, yeah, just prior to uh, to him going after the Joker, he uh, Bruce Wayne had been on the boat and had this interaction with Selina and and uh, Selina, who it appears that she and uh, actually we know this because of what happens later in the scene but they do in fact know each other's identities and uh, they just don't really they don't really it's sort of ambiguous though at the beginning it doesn't seem like mm. she, she repeats a line to him as they're out of costume that she had said in a prior scene when they were both in costume and you kind of see bruce react to that letting you know that at least bruce knows that she has put two and two together and puts and realizes that she's catwoman but then later on she calls Bruce shows back up on the boat to sort of uh, interrupt this interaction between uh, Selena and, and Falcone's son. And there's, she calls him Bruce. So yeah, there, <laughs> apparently she had figured it out at some point that he was, that he was Batman and he already knew as well. And that leads to kind of Batman's secret identity being exposed right then and there. Yeah, so that's uh, yeah, as, as Batman seemingly has come to confront the real killer, this uh, Alberto, uh, you know, the Romans, you know, measly little son who was never good enough and decided seemingly that he wanted to take take the family for himself and and take it by force by eliminating all of the other sort of heir parents to uh, to the throne Um but as as there as Batman sort of is confronting him, we we see some fireworks go off and we hear a loud bang, and that isn't just the pop of the fireworks, as it is makes made very clear that uh, that Alberto has been shot. And as we look up on one of the upper decks, we again see this man with this familiar pistol and uh, with that with the the fedora and the and the black overcoat on, and lays a few more shots into Alberto who. Not just he doesn't just get shot; he falls off the boat and is apparently sliced up by the uh, the, the rudder, the propeller of the ship. So, uh, about as dead as dead could be. Um, so that kind of ruins Batman's idea that he could be the Holiday Killer. And Batman gives chase, but the the killer is able to sort of elude him in the in the crowd on the ship and then escape on a on a speedboat. And at the same time. Uh, Bat, so Batman is is sort of left once again at, at square one, and we we sort of get Gordon, Batman, and and Dent reuniting one more time to discuss that their their number one their new number one suspect that they had just discovered that being Alberto Falcone is not the killer, nor does it appear that the Joker is the killer. So that sort of leads them back to square one, and that's uh, that's how this part one of this movie ends um or does it that's right as you as you alerted me as we were preparing to go on i uh, got a nice message saying hey uh don't forget to watch the the post-credit scene and i said what uh yeah there's a, <laughs> there's a post-credit scene here at uh at the funeral for falcone's son alberto and uh, Bruce Wayne is there as of course is uh, Falcone himself, Carmine and uh, Bruce uh, is sort of there paying his respects. Falcone comes up 
and introduces Bruce to his associate who shakes his hand and uh, this vine slips out from underneath of her sleeve and begins to wrap around Bruce's fingers and there's a slow pan up to her eyes and uh, Bruce's eyes as they turn green and uh, this sort of neon green and it appears to be that this might be Miss Poison Ivy. And that's sort of where we're left as far as the uh, the cliffhanger for part two. So with that, Liam, I guess just uh, I will say uh, full disclosure before this week, I had not read The Long Halloween and that seems uh, seems mm. certainly sacrilegious as a Batman <laughs> fan uh, going into it. But I did uh, on the amazing DC Universe app, uh, probably Probably my favorite app in the universe. I'll just say that. <laughs> uh, just a wonderful application, a full catalog of DC comics at your fingertips, all contained on your cellular phone or tablet. I mean, what what more could you ask for? Am I right? I can't think of a thing. That's right. So on the fantabulous DC Universe app, I did catch up and read the first four issues of this series, which uh, ultimately is what uh, make up the the first part of this movie here. So uh, I was able to do that. And I will say that I think some of the changes to the plot and, uh, you know, ultimately what the movie, how the movie is written, it's always has to be changed, right? Like you always, sometimes Mm -hmm. that stuff just does not translate one-to-one. And I think honestly, with some of the movies that we've covered, if you go back and listen in the archives, one of the biggest, uh, one of the biggest gripes or complaints or critiques that we had, I should say, for the Batman under the red hood movie was that it was a little bit too faithful to the book in that it sort of added to the runtime and made things that were not relevant to kind of what we were watching on screen seem uh, just out of place. There were some mm-hmm. some parts of it that just were not adapted well and, and sort of disrupted the flow of the movie. Um, so because of that, I think that this changing things up a little bit, as far as I'm concerned, and again, somebody who was not a huge fan or didn't have a lot of experience reading the source material i was okay with the deviation based on what i did read and what they chose to do with the story yeah and a lot of it i think is also just sort of taking similar scenes and sort of just tweaking them a little bit we talked about you know very minor changes like the irish gang becoming a a chinese gang but then even something like the the sort of the reverse order in in the book he, uh, you know, Batman meets up with Catwoman actually at the uh, the Romans uh, uh, high rise and then chases her. And then, you know, in the middle of the chase, notices the bat signal and go goes and has his meeting with uh, with Denton and Gordon. Whereas in in the movie, obviously, it kind of hap- happens in reverse where he's having this meeting. And then while he's standing on the roof, he notices Catwoman and and she leads him. Catwoman also has a more active role in the in the first few issues, at, or in in the in this one compared to her her first few issues. As far as uh, in the in the comic book, we see a little bit more of Selena Kyle, and that in this version, obviously, as we said, sh- uh, sh- she and Bruce know each other's secret, or at least discover it. Whereas in the comic, that isn't really the case, and it's just you know Bruce and Selena both have a both have a romance or a budding romance going on at the same time that uh that batman and catwoman are sort of formulating their romance so it's kind of this this strange thing where where uh, even though they don't know they don't know that they are the same they're all they're all sort of courting each other in, in this strange uh 
you know, just two people leading double lives. But uh, yeah, in in the movie, there she has a more active role as far as she is. She's actually leading him to the the Romans' money stockpile, as we talked about, and then she's, you know, she she seems to have a more active role in in helping him and being sort of one of his first. Uh, you know, she helps him out when he's fighting off the uh, the the Chinese gang. Later, he's uh, she's she's active in helping him take them down so that he can get back after uh, this this Mickey Chen character. So they've certainly changed her role a little bit. And then, as we talked about, they sort of have increased the amount of play that uh, Harvey uh, that Har- Harvey's home life has here, and and then sort of. In the uh, in the book, when when Guild after the explosion, Gilda's kind of just in the hospital and and becomes very much a background player. And whereas here, her 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 character and and her uh, arguments with Harvey and and her her sort of own fragile mental state, is sort of adding to this stress and desperation that Harvey feels and wanting to take down uh, the Roman and the rest of these criminals. So yeah, I will say that. While you know, I I I I I do love this book, and I and I I would hate I, before before I saw this, I probably wouldn't have have said you shouldn't change anything. I probably would have uh, you know been pretty stubborn about that. But I think for for the sake of a whatever this is 80, 82 minute movie, um, and for the sake of expediency, and for the sake of having a little more depth to your character, and even that just that you know that little scene of Gordon at the house with his with his kids and his wife, kind of just reinforcing that you know all of these men and and the toll that it's sort of taking on their on their personal lives. I, I think that's kind of worth it, even if it means a little less superhero action, or if it means changing things around a little bit, or or you know, a little more talking and a little less punching. I, I think for the most part, these are all things that you should do when you're when you're adapting a thing. And yeah, doing a doing a scene by scene adaptation, it's cool. And obviously it's 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 certainly a way to go and has been done with certain adaptations, as you said before, Cal. But overall, I think I would say most of the tweaks made for part one so far are not only are they not that big, but they're for the most part, I think for the better and for it's in, in the service of making you care more about the individual characters, as well as this overarching, you know, superhero and supervillain and the mystery and all of that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, if you have read this storyline before, or you kind of know where it's going, uh, it's interesting because it, you know it does add some depth to more of the characters that you have that are likely to play a larger role or to that you know I, I mean even without knowing knowing the spoilers of, of who the killer is revealed to be um, in the original storyline I you know I, I think that it's important to kind of have the depth added where you can to these characters you know you're not limited to, 25 pages and you know and with you know nine panels on each page essentially you can Mm -hmm. kind of flesh out some of the characters and and give them more depth and dimension um, than you can in a in a smaller smaller book form so why not take advantage of that and yeah this this i think is a little bit light on the action it's certainly a more story driven 
mm-hmm. uh, movie, at least for this part one here, there is some action. And I think there's also some purpose behind some of the other uh, fleshing out of characters. We mentioned this is loosely tied into what we believe to be sort of the new animated DC universe, uh, if not already confirmed. I'm not sure if it's been officially confirmed, but uh, there's there's been two other movies. Is it Superman Man of Tomorrow, I believe, and then mm-hmm. Justice Society movie that also came out this year um, are also sort of part of this this DC animated movie universe that they started launching. The second version, 2.0, I don't know if there's a <laughs> second name for this, but, you know, we, we were talking sort of before we went on the air, but if with Catwoman and Batman knowing each other's identities, that's a very easy parlay into doing the an adaptation of the Batman Catwoman wedding storyline later on, or, you know, it set, sets up a, a Batman Catwoman movie later on if you want to adapt some of the the more recent storylines that have been been uh, running in the in the comics. So it opens doors and it gives you, you know, more more opportunity to sort of to bring this into a, a larger universe and not pigeonhole people into things and set up future future movies and, and tie ins. So it, it you know, that's the name of the game these days when it comes to most media especially when it comes to Superman. Mm-hmm. So um, with all that said, I, I think that this is a very enjoyable movie. I think having the cliffhanger and it being condensed into one part, it is a lot. It does cover a lot. You have four, you know, four different holidays essentially that are covered here. And you have uh, a lot of story building to hopefully what we're going to see in the culmination uh, in part two. But I think it's a good setup. I think that it's a good fleshing out. I think that there's a lot, a lot here, a lot of the ins and outs. It does feel very uh, DCAU, Batman, the animated series adjacent at times, certainly Batman year one with the crime families mixed in there. And it's a lot more mob boss heavy. Of course, you do have the Joker thrown in at the end. Mm -hmm. You don't really have the colorful rogues, which those stories are great and fun. But these darker detective stories are, are also have their fun and place as well. And I think that that's not something that you get to see a whole lot unless it's a specifically, uh, you know, a, a cartoon that's, that's geared towards adults. So I, I appreciated the fact that this movie, again, for a specific audience, the direct-to-video or, you know, direct-to-Blu-ray audience uh, gives you that opportunity to sort of not necessarily have to write for the younger audience and write a more mature story and, and mm-hmm. something that deals with uh, those more mature themes in the, the mob bosses that we loved so much from those original Batman, the animated series episodes. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. I think, I think it takes its time and it, like you said, it does have a lot to, to fit in. Um, and this is obviously, as you said, only really an, ad- an adaptation of the first four issues of the comic, of a 13-issue a comic. So I will be curious to see how the pacing of, uh, of part two goes. Certainly, that'll be something we will obviously cover next week. But uh, yeah, as far as just introducing the plot. Now, I think part of the, the maybe the only issue where this fails is because it's a part one and it is advertised as such. So it's not like people didn't understand that there was going to be a, a sequel or anything. So I, I don't, I don't, I'm not accusing them of false advertising or anything, but I think the only where only way where you could maybe critique the story is the, like, could, does this work as a standalone story, a standalone movie that you watch? 
the way like i don't know like uh just keeping in theme of like superhero stuff like you know if of the avengers infinity war movie which obviously was a ended on a cliffhanger but it's a pretty satisfying and and exciting movie in its own right whereas this is this really just like an 84 minute prologue to you know part two i think maybe that's the biggest critique you could you could lay at this is that it really only works in conjunction with the second part and it and maybe that you could make some arguments that it should you know maybe it should have like a more triumphant ending like maybe it should have ended with batman catching the joker as as the end of part one and then and then you do the credit stinger to set up part two i don't know like i'm, I'm just sort of i'm just sort of throwing out out things here but that's that's probably the biggest critique uh, i could lay that like i said I, I don't mind them deviating from the source material as much but i i do think maybe if if there is an area where it falls down it's that it's it really is it really does feel like this this doesn't really stand up by itself but again it is it is labeled as a part one so maybe it's not supposed to yeah yeah no you're yeah i think you're spot on with that i i think if you're looking and we'll we'll talk about that later on as far as rewatchability is concerned but yeah this isn't something you can really watch in a vacuum you know it it doesn't it doesn't tie things up enough at the end it's very much a to be continued like you know if, mm-hmm. if there had been a title card to be continued that came up it would have been pretty poetic um you know it, it feels like an elongated part one of a of an animated television show so more than it does you know if you had gone and seen this in the theaters and i know that that's something that they have that movies have done and continued to do as you mentioned uh, most famously maybe the marvel movies or pretty mm-hmm. much any any major intellectual property these days will have a a cliffhanger that leads you to to the next season Mm -hmm. but you know it's it does in in this way i would say uh maybe not stand up to a single watch um by itself in a vacuum so it relying on the next part really puts a lot of pressure on that next part to be somewhat satisfying because that could really take a sour, sour turn uh, if it is not satisfying or if it does not hold up or does not seem very fulfilling. Um, With that said, I think that with the way that everything moves, um, Mm -hmm. it didn't feel like it dragged at any point for me. I thought they did a good job of keeping things moving while telling a very in-depth tale um, so I ended up giving giving plot a strong eight out of ten. What about you? Yeah, I, uh, I actually gave it the exact same score, an eight out of ten. I think it's it's very strong. It has a lot to juggle, but it doesn't feel really overstuffed at all. It's got a lot of characters to introduce, but I, I think it uses its time wisely, and it, it does make you care about these characters. And either in the sense of where the villainous characters, you're kind of waiting to see them get their comeuppance, but for you know, I think I think you really do care pretty deeply about about Harvey Dent, especially by the end of this, and and his wife, and and his personal struggles as well as the struggle to bring down these these criminals. So I think they do a really good job with the with the time allotted. Yeah, I agree, and uh, I, I will say that I will reserve judgment for the next part also. So if not that I would go back and change my scores, but if the next part is uh, is not as satisfying, or I don't, or I feel like it's a little rushed, or any of that, then that you know that could that could weigh heavier on the score next week for my plot than it would maybe on a general two part, you know, forty four minute. Mm-hmm. 
So be interested to see how that goes. All right, Liam, let's move on to our next category, which is going to be visuals and animation. And uh, as you mentioned, uh, this uh, this is not a an animation studio that we're familiar with. It's not one of the typical ones, at least uh, at least in the modern era. Uh, it's a little bit different. And the style, I would say, most familiar if you're looking at it. There is some influence here. We're looking at uh, you know the, the the retro 1930s brought into the modern era. There is certainly some homages uh, with the vehicles, and certainly. The, the style of certain cars and the way that people are dressed uh, could be that sort of retro 30s 40s look that the batman the animated series made popular uh, but uh you know we we do have a style that's akin to like an archer-esque or even batman the brave and the bold where you have cell shading and these characters that's that are look uh look more akin to certainly western animation uh, as opposed to the more eastern animation style of the of the Mm -hmm. prior dc animated movie universe they have these thick border lines around them that also sort of lead you to kind of draw inspiration from uh from a comic book so uh, let's talk about visuals and animation here for you and and i will say um this animation looks nothing like Tim Tim Sally or Tim Sale, however you want to pronounce it, his artwork. That is one thing that I will say you can say from the get go here. And there's probably multiple reasons why, especially if they're trying to shoehorn this or jam this into a, a brand new animated shared universe here. Uh, they're not going to specifically make this look like something that is extremely stylized, extremely unique. Um, in the way that, that mm-hmm. Tim's work is, but it, in a way, I, I was a little bit disappointed that there wasn't, there wasn't more homages or direct, uh, direct visuals linking this. Cause other than the name itself and the plot, uh, it, the, I feel like his style of art is what makes the, uh, part of what makes that comic so unique yeah, it's a lot of it's a lot of like minimal background. It's very focused on on silhouettes. The character designs are very um, they're very sort of exaggerated. You know, Batman is this just hulking mass of muscle with this. You know, this he's in shadow for a lot of a lot of that book, and he you you very rarely see his face, and he has these big long ears, and he sort of you know you know along with the the inks and then the colors by Gregory Wright, he sort of disappearing into the backgrounds of the of the scenes very often and you know he's very often sort of enveloped in the shadow and and uh you know that there's sort of uh, not a ton of you know facial detail and 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 it's more sort of uh you know it's all a lot of people are very exaggerated and they do they do kind of the only one i think where they tried to really emulate that is maybe the joker design a little bit Mm-hmm. In that, you know, if if you read the comics, the Joker's in, especially the uh, in 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 issue three, the Christmas issue, where he's breaking into uh, breaking into Dent's house and he's wearing the Santa hat and all that. He's he's almost like he's he's almost like a golem type creature. Like it's he's so lanky and he sort of is crouched and hunched over. He has this like really strange, like uh, you know, like a like a horrific monster out of like a horror movie, like a goblin or something that you would that you would see. And they, they kind of try to capture that a little bit. I think with this Joker design, he's very tall and very skinny and kind of moves very strangely, but it, yeah, there isn't really an attempt to capture 
that even with something as simple as, you know, having Batman have the very long ears or, or even like a similar color palette on the suit, as far as like the, you know, in, in the comic, it's, it's, you know, the kind of the blue cape and cowl with, with the, with the gray suit. And, and they don't, they don't really go for that. And yeah, that is, that's a little bit of a disappointment. There are little, uh, little homages, like after each murder you have, a shot of you know the gun left at the scene with whatever the the holiday ornament that's left behind, and then the uh, you know the name of the holiday pops up like that's that's sort of straight out of every single issue is you know usually usually the final shot of the issue is is the murder te- that's taken place and with that with that gun left behind with the uh, the the baby bottle nipple working as the uh the silencer and and then the uh whatever the the holiday ornament is that's left behind as well so they there's little aesthetic things they try they tried to put in there but as far as any sort of direct adaptation of of tim sally style or tim sale style that that really doesn't exist in in this at all and i i do think that's a little bit of a disappointment for some for someone like me who is such a fan and I think the the atmosphere of that book and the sort of moody and exaggerated uh, uh, moments in 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 that uh, in that book are, are part of what makes it so memorable and so great and really stands out among among Batman stories for me is is the art and so yeah without that I still think there's some some fun moments and some some cool stuff and and uh, we can certainly get into that but as far as adapting anything like I said, other than those little uh, those little moments with the gun and the, and the names of the holidays popping up, and then some of some of the sort of repeated imagery, like you know the you know Joker walking out of the room and you see the the bodyguards with the the, the smiles on their faces, or the 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 bodyguard laying down you know face down in the street with the the bloody Joker cards underneath of them. But as far as direct adaptations of uh, of any of uh, of Tim's art style, yeah, that that unfortunately doesn't really exist here. Other than the opening credits, where sort of there's shots lifted directly from the book, sort of uh, overlaid on top of the the opening credits. But yeah, we don't really get a much of a of a chance or or really even an attempt to adapt that style. Yeah, that was a little bit disappointing. Obviously, I, I think even if you haven't read this, if you are a DC fan or if you are a fan at all, you will recognize that his artwork style is is just you very unique. It's its own style. There's no way of like you can look at the artwork and recognize immediately uh, a you know a, a Tim Tim Sale or Tim Sally piece. Like it's it's clearly his you know his artwork so other than you mentioned the credits i thought were great and i was hoping you know maybe we would get mm-hmm. some more of that in the closing credits or you know maybe we'll see more of that in part two but i did appreciate that as we kind of see the credits uh, lining up and then there's this sort of chalk outline being drawn throughout as we get the names and the of the different uh, people involved in the in the in the movie uh, overlaid, and we eventually we see that that is drawn out a Batman symbol, and we've seen different flashes, as you mentioned, of different uh, panels from the book itself. But I will say that I feel like they did their best to keep the palette fairly muted because that's something else that I feel is a pretty 
um, a pretty, uh, pretty important thing for at least those first four issues is while there is some splashes of color that come in when you get the Joker showing up for a lot of the early issues, it's very muted. In some cases, scenes are intentionally done in black and white. Um, so while not maybe faithfully adapting the art style or the complete muted, uh, colors that they, that, uh, you know, they chose to do for those books, it does, it does not seem bright and exciting and, and like this, you know, crazy cartoon world that we're living in. It does seem very grounded and gritty and dirty and sort of murky at times in the, uh, in, in, for the majority, I would say of the scenes that we, that we see. Um, even even when the Joker does arrive, uh, he he I feel like is even muted, with the exception of maybe the scene where he's decorating this Christmas tree inside uh, Harvey Dent's house that he's broken into. Tis the season to be jolly. <laughs> Outside it's an awful chiller. <laughs> Boy, this holiday's a killer. <laughs> Gilda, is that you? Gilda! She looks like a Gilda. Looking for this. <laughs> Relax, lollipop. Police issue. Where's my wife? She's just where I left her. Last minute shopping. Spoiler alert. It sucks. What do you want? Oh, I thought I was playing Santa Claus. Oh, all right. I want a fire engine and a football and to deliver a message. Put the gun down and we'll talk. Um, I, I think some of the things that, that stood out for me, the, the sequence with, with Catwoman gave me some of the uh, chase me vibes. The, uh, the short mm -hmm. that was included on the bat, uh, the uh, mystery of the Batwoman DVD. There's a, there's a short little, uh, you know, uh, it's completely uh, wordless. No, no, no dialogue. Uh, short where Batman's chasing Catwoman through Gotham City and uh, that may have in itself been an homage to to the long Halloween book but I got some 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 of those vibes and I think Catwoman having a suit in this similar to Batman the animated series also with the gray and the sort of the black uh, part to the face and the the long black gloves and boots definitely gave me some Batman the animated series vibes but I think there was actually a couple of things that were may have been an homage, uh, as our friends at the Watchtower database first pointed out. But the Batmobile itself also very much in the style of the new Batman Adventures Batmobile as well. Yes, that is. A, and, and we should mention here the supervising producer on these more recent uh, DC animated films is uh, has been one Mr. Butch Lukic, who of course worked as a director and a storyboard artist on uh, going all the way back to the original animated series and then through Superman and, and Justice League and, and JLU as well. So 
uh, a lot of DCAU in the in the DNA of Mr. Lukic, who's of course also gone on to uh, direct and and draw in, in shows like Ben Ten and, and a lot of other Warner Brothers animation projects before uh, settling in as the supervising producer on this uh, this series of movies. So. Yeah, there's definitely some uh, some pretty classic DCAU uh, Batman the Animated Series homages, both in Batman's general look is is kind of if you took the the, the costume from the new Batman Adventures and maybe uh you know he doesn't quite have the you know the the, the ridiculously simple you know boxy square jaw that that version has, but he's definitely some similarities there as you mentioned the batmobile and and catwoman's costume it uh even though it's it, i think it's a little hard to tell because a lot of our scenes are in the shadows but it it does have the sort of the gray with the black gloves and and boots and and the sort of the black uh accent on the on the mask it doesn't have the the gold belt but that's a pretty pretty reminiscent of her uh mm-hmm her Batman the Animated Series costume as well. So yeah, there's definitely uh, some some pretty fun uh, DCAU homages. Uh, we we do, as, as you mentioned, there's a scene where they go to Arkham Asylum and, and that building, which actually was, uh, there is a brief scene of them going there in the comic and it's lifted from there, but I, I'm pretty sure Mr. Mr. Sale was also influenced by uh, Batman the Animated Series and in his design of Arkham because it's very similar as far as the the signage and then the you know this giant sort of facility on this long winding at the top of this long winding hill, very reminiscent of that that sort of establishing shot that we would see in in the animated series as well. So certainly in the backgrounds and the vehicles and then some of the costuming as well. Uh, definitely some uh some dcau in the dna of this film no question about that yeah absolutely i i think overall i really love the style that they ultimately went with um i i think i was kind of watching it under the lens and thinking like okay if they had decided to do a batman the animated series reboot how would they have done it especially with the you know modernizing the way that animation is done nowadays this is hand-drawn digital animation um it's not not completely cgi or Mm -hmm. you know cell shaded over that cgi like we've seen in some some more modern animation but uh, I was I was just kind of picturing. I was saying this would actually kind of fit in. I would kind of I would I would enjoy seeing cartoons based on this sort of art style and artwork because it does feel like it has its own identity and certainly uh, is not uh, not Batman the animated series is not the new Batman Adventures is not Bruce Tim style but it, 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 it doesn't feel all that different from it either. So, um, you know, it feels somewhat familiar. It has certainly has some similarities to the, the brave and the bold style. And, uh, and mm-hmm. while not being quite as cartoony, more, uh, more, a little more realistic, but, uh, some of the cityscapes, I think the way that Gotham was drawn, um, it, it does have that old Gothic feeling to it that Gotham typically mm-hmm. has, but also sort of, uh, sort of based on and, and certainly not alien to the the DCAU style. Um, they didn't go with the red skies, which I was disappointed in. I was hoping we get some red <laughs> skies, but that would have been that would have been probably too on the nose for for DCAU uh, influences for us. So uh, they, I, I will say there are some great sweeping shots of that. There's a 
a bit of a car chase that we get between the Batmobile and and uh, the uh, I believe it's the is it the Triad the member of the Triad uh, mm-hmm. trying to escape. Uh, so there there is some interesting interesting sequences there. I will say, like we said though, there's it's it's a lot of dialogue heavy scenes in this, with the exception of when the Joker gets introduced. We have this really dynamic scene. Uh, right out of the comic that takes place uh, a fight between Batman and the Joker. Actually, I think it's probably a little bit extended uh, in the movie than it was uh, in the comic book, but we have a quite an interesting fisticuffs taking place as the Joker is attempting to release this uh, Joker toxin across the crowd of people downtown in Gotham and Batman and him are sort of fighting on the wing and he uses his, his, uh, his acid flower to shoot acid at Batman while he's on the wing. And uh, there's quite, quite a heavy fisticuffs that's going on in a battle to prevent him from releasing this toxin. So uh, that sequence I think is probably for me, the highlight and the, probably the most action heavy of the, of the entire uh, movie with maybe with the exception of Batman, Batman's fight against the triad, which you, you sort of alluded to before. Yeah, I think that's, that sequence is pretty fun and it's, it's pretty much taken right, right from the, uh, the graphic novel as well. This just this kind of vicious visceral fight between Batman and Joker with, with it being in this unique, unique setting of being in this like little two person Cessna airplane and, and with that, that sort of added uh, drama of the Joker trying to get, the city is as batman's trying to stop him while while also trying to sort of suss out whether or not the joker is this holiday killer or if the joker knows who the killer really is so it's it does add that interesting dynamic and and their their fight is pretty fun you see the joker have obviously as the joker talks and he also breaks breaks out the acid at one point i think that's a pretty cool a lot of the effects as well are, are digital as far as like the explosions and fire and even it appeared this acid here where it, you know, it's just this green, green stuff lands on Batman's shoulder and sort of the smoke starts to rise and then cut back and you see where it's burned through his suit and it's kind of burned his shoulder. So I think that's a, I think for the most part, the digital effects, the digital vehicles or the CGI vehicles look pretty good. Um, And uh, I thought they blended a lot better. Maybe they just blend a little bit better with this style um, and with, with that extra cell shading put on them. But but yeah, I, I didn't. Uh, I didn't have as as many issues with the CGI vehicles as we perhaps have uh, when reviewing some of our regular DCU shows. But uh, yeah, I, I definitely think the two standout action beats are are that one, and as you mentioned, when he's when he's fighting the the Chinese mobsters, and uh, just that whole sequence is pretty fun. It starts out as this car chase with the Batmobile, and then spills out into this kind of Chinatown area that's sort of bathed in these you know these these lanterns that are all red and. And so Batman and 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 the uh, the different mobsters are all fighting, and they all have their unique uh, weapons, and they're all kind of these different sizes. There's a giant guy that has a spear, and then one of them appears to have like nunchucks, and one of them has a sword and some throwing stars, and so you you get some some good variety there. And then it, you know, of course, this Catwoman gets involved, and and everything, and yeah. So I I, th- I think overall, um, while this animation style isn't necessarily my my favorite version of these characters, certainly. I do think they they did try to make uh, some interesting choices, even if they didn't necessarily try to directly adapt uh, Tim Sale's style for this. But all that being said, I think they did a pretty good job. I liked most of the uh, the character designs and everything. Um, I think they're all they're all pretty on point. And uh, for that reason, I gave visuals and animation a very strong eight out of ten. 
Yeah, so far we're two for two. I gave it the exact same score. I think I would have <laughs> would have given a perfect score just because I do like the style. But again, my issue is that it wasn't even attempted to sort of make this look like Tim Sale's uh, artwork at all. I would say there, there was one moment where you kind of get uh, Gordon's glasses kind of you get the white flash off of his glasses in a couple of scenes, mm-hmm. which is which is was very reminiscent of that style. But it's only kind of glimpses here and there. It's it's not, uh, you know, the character models themselves are not the same, as you mentioned, with the exception, maybe a little bit of how the Joker was done. Um, but everything else is pretty much in the style of this universe that they're trying to build. So, yeah, I think that that just because you're basing it off of this comic book and this comic book is so, uh, so iconic. It was one of the main issues that I had with know with the superman doomsday model that they did or even the the reign of the superman movie that came on after that or Mm -hmm. the death of superman is that these are such iconic comic books and then you're changing the style of the artwork um even batman the killing joke you know you're changing the style and that's what a huge part of what makes those comic books iconic is the artwork so when you change when you change and deviate from that, it's not just changing one or two things in the plot, like we said, where we were okay with, you're changing something that makes it feel like a different story in a way. Yeah, totally. It's It, it definitely does give it a, a different vibe. I think they try to, and we'll certainly talk about that in uh, in voice acting and, and, and we've already talked about the story. They really try to give it this sort of, you know, give it that sort of, creepy murder mystery feel and there are scenes where you just see you know like the killer loading the gun and then sort of loading the bullets in before he goes and kills all of the uh the chinese mobsters in the restaurant and so they are trying to i think emulate some of that stuff but without that proper uh proper aesthetic i think it you you can see what they're going for but it doesn't quite give you that same feeling and again that's just part of what happens when you're one when you're translating it from a page to a screen, but then as you as we've been talking about, when also when this has to at least somewhat fit into a, an already established art style that's going to be part of a connected universe, you can't really have it be too uh, you know too abstract or too uh, too stylized uh, on its own. There you go. All right, Liam, let's move on to our next category, which is going to be music. And music was done by composer Michael Gatt for this week. I believe it's Gatt. I'm pronouncing that, hopefully pronouncing that correctly. Uh, but Mr. Gatt was responsible for composing the music. Uh, he's done a lot of other uh, composition for various movie projects. Um, I believe he did DC Superhero Girls before this also. Um, mm-hmm. amongst a lot of other a lot of other uh, credits to his name but um, as far as the music is concerned I didn't have a ton of notes it feels uh, like a lot of these direct-to-video movies are that the music is not something that is uh, it's not in the forefront it tends not to be a, a major player it's it's more thought of uh, in how you would score a movie. And that is it's, it's atmospheric. You add, it adds to tension in scenes and adds to, you know, uh, creating atmosphere where there needs to be, but it doesn't uh, lend to having a, a strong heroic theme necessarily, or certainly one that I was able to pick out. Um, did you have any thoughts specifically on music? 
Yeah, I think it does its best to sort of add that atmosphere, I think, especially in, in the moments sort of before or just after one of the murders takes place. It's that very ominous string, strings that are sort of coming to, you know, that come to that sharp crescendo, almost, you know, almost like something out of a horror movie or something or a slasher film, I think, is maybe what uh, what they were going for with that. Uh, I Yeah, I think it... I think there are scenes where I did notice it sort of, you know, again, adding to that tension, but there isn't really a, you know, a theme or a proper, a proper musical moment that really stood out to me the way that themes, uh, obviously that we talk about regularly in our, in our regular reviews, or even something like a, you know, a, a hero theme that you might hear in, in a, you know, a live action Batman film or, a, or any superhero film, you know, there's some, you know, some very iconic pieces of music, even for, you know, for film versions of these characters. And I, I didn't really feel like we got much of that. Like I said, I, I think that the scene, for instance, when, uh, when, when Harvey goes home and, and on Christmas and, and the Joker is there, it's, you get that very shrill and ominous music as it's sort of revealed what's happening. And, and, uh, and as that fight sort of uh, begins to escalate and, and you sort of see Joker pull out the gun and, and then pulls out one of uh, the the holiday killers style of guns and asks Harvey if he's missing one. Um, there's, I think there's some, there's some good, uh, some good kind of shrill, intense music there, but uh, the lack of like a proper like character theme, I feel like is, is maybe what brought my score down a little bit. And again, I don't, I don't think anything is bad, but uh, I don't, I don't feel like anything stood out too strongly for me either. And uh, that's why I ended up giving music a five out of 10. Nice. Um, I will say that the scene actually involving the Joker, where he's kind of escaping the uh, Falcone, the Falcone mm-hmm. uh, mansion after he's sort of taken Falcone hostage. Uh, there is some music there that I, I did notate that was pretty fun as he's sort of uh, escaping with this gunfight between uh, Falcone's bodyguard and him. There was there was some it sort of ramped up a little bit there. And certainly on the airplane, also the fight between Batman and the Joker uh, was was pretty, uh, you know, it added to the atmosphere, but certainly created more tension and seemed to be different than the uh the general mood setting music that was the the majority of the the uh the movie the rest of the movie hopefully we get more action sequences it's hard you can you know you're not going to have these dynamic themes come in when it's dialogue heavy uh i feel like so which a lot of the a lot of the first part here was uh this these intense conversations or you know even the the conversation between batman and alfred in the bat cave you're not going to (laughs) have have dynamic themes come in over top of it would be very out of place obviously so um i i gave the music a six out of ten um it's not because it's it didn't do its job it's just there wasn't anything i felt like that stood out i will say also mm-hmm. uh, this this soundtrack along with part two soundtrack are available i believe on uh streaming services music streaming services and you can probably find it on youtube also if you're interested in listening to some of the uh the work that uh, Mr. Gat did for this, uh, for this movie. So check it out if you, uh, if you got the time. All right, Liam, let's move on to our final categories. You mentioned we have a big, 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 big vocal cast this week uh, for our voice actors. So without further ado, let's discuss this week's voice cast. Yeah. And there's uh, there's quite a few. We probably, uh, I'm just going to kind of read out most of the names now, and then we can get to some of the, the bigger stars, but we have, Greg Chun as Mickey Chen. We uh, briefly have Fred Tadeskior as Grundy. 
we briefly have uh, David Dostmalfian as uh, as Calendar Man, who folks would know as as the the polka dot man in the recent Suicide Squad movie. Solid. Um, yeah. I thought he did a solid job. It was a, it that scene itself, the dialogue between Batman, Calendar Man, and and Gordon is there as well. I thought uh, thought thought it was thought it was very enjoyable. It's a brief bit of dialogue, you know. It's it's a mm-hmm. scene probably, but uh, you leave really feeling like you know, Calendar Man is one of those silly Silver Age villains that kind of yes. always doesn't fit. Seems like he doesn't fit into modern day. Obviously, they added a sinister edge to him, you know, doing murders on various holidays but i uh, always felt like he he was uh, you know a days gone by type villain so creating this sort of sinister edge to him this but uh, but it being a very subtle sinister type like haunting serial killer type vibe to him very uh very very silence of the lambs sort of hannibal lecter type vibe to him you know with batman yes. and him talking between the glass at arkham asylum so uh very very great performance by that actor who obviously as you mentioned suicide squad and then uh previously in the uh, christopher nolan films in uh the dark knight mm-hmm. absolutely yeah I, I do i definitely think that scene is great and there, that is something that is maybe touched on a little bit more in the book but they do sort of have that discussion uh, both batman and gordon and then a little bit with calendar man the uh, sort of pokes at the idea that i think gets brought up maybe more now than it used to maybe almost too much now but the idea of whether or not batman is you know more attracting these these insane criminals then he is actually helping to stop them at this point and and then sort of also you know having this this calendar man who you know speaks in these really sinister sort of riddles about what's about what's going on and seems to know almost everything and then kind of clues batman in that the joker's escaped and uh all that yeah i do think that's a that's a really tremendous scene and speaking of the joker we have troy baker who we have previously talked about as he voiced the Joker in the Arkham Origins video game, as well as the Assault on Arkham uh, deep straight-to-DVD movie, has voiced the character a few other times. Um, I, I have the same critiques about him I had the last time we talked about him, which wasn't <laughs> that long ago, um, which is that he's very clearly doing an impression of Mark Hamill, which I think made more sense when he was playing a younger version of that Joker, uh-huh. Um, and I maybe would have liked to have seen him try to stretch his legs. He's a very talented actor. Is you know one of the sort of you know he's probably on the you know the Mount Rushmore of, of like video game actors of the of the two thousands. He's you know him and Nolan North and and people like that that are just constantly in video games because they're so good at it and can have a lot of talent. They just don't. Uh, I, I I guess that I still yeah I I don't have a lot new to say. You can can hear uh, i think more of our thoughts on on his performance as joker if you go back in uh, in the archives and hear our episode where we talked about uh, assault on arkham but, like i don't think he does a bad job like i think he's sufficiently sinister in that in that scene where he's threatening harvey and then that final scene with batman but i i also think like hey why don't you you know is mark hamill too expensive like <laughs> Yeah, I, I I don't have as much of a problem, I think, uh, with with his performance. You know, I think we talked about that. You can check that out from last month's episode that we talked about that, as you mentioned, uh, in the Assault on Arkham. In the archives at DCAUReview.com and on your favorite podcast app. But um, I will say that I feel like at times it did feel like he was trying to stretch it and not sound like a, a complete ripoff. But then there are other times where it's just like, man, you you really are. You just 
just listen to, to just hours of, of Mark Hamill's performance here. And you're just, you're just doing a, an impersonation of it. Uh, I, I can take him in small doses. I think that if he had been throughout the entire movie, it would have brought my score down ultimately a, a little bit just because yeah, it is not Mark Hamill. It's somebody doing, how, how long can you do listen to somebody doing an, an impersonation of somebody, even if it's a really good impersonation of somebody like mm-hmm. the best, the person that does the best, you know, uh, John Madden or Donald Trump impersonation. Like how long do you want to actually listen to somebody do that? Like very small <laughs> spurts. If you want to listen to that, like, and then you're going to, they're going to say, all right, well, I've had enough of that. So there's a reason why impersonations people that do impersonations typically do more than one because just one impersonation gets tired real, real quick. Yes. Yeah. I will say, I do think, I think he does a good laugh. I think he's, he's got a couple of scenes, both when he's confronting Falcone and then at the end when he and Batman are fighting the plane where he's really got to kind of let loose with a, a more sort of archetypal classic Joker laugh. And I think his laugh is pretty unique and, and doesn't sound like he's just trying to date Mark Hamill's version. So I, I, I will give him credit there. I think it's a, it's a pretty strong Joker laugh, but uh, yeah, rapid fire throughout some of these other characters. We have a uh, Jack Quaid who, who folks might know from the, the Amazon series, the boys uh, playing Alberto Falcone. Um, again, we, we sort of see, get more to do in this in this than uh, than the character had in the in the original books uh, at least in those first few issues as uh, you know prior to his death they sort of set up this this resentful relationship between him and his father who was uh, played by by Titus Welliver in this uh, who folks might know from the town or uh, or Argo uh, playing Falcone here yeah I mean I, I think that that relationship and that scene I think the, the scene at Thanksgiving where Alberto's kind of trying to stand up for himself and is telling telling Carmine that he he sent the dense flowers after their house was blown up and and you know uh, and Carmine kind of grabs him by the throat and really really talks down to him. I think that's a pretty dramatic and and uh, and and interesting scene. So I think they they play well off each other. Is there something you wish to say? No, Papa. Except to point out that Harvey Dent is still alive. Because I allow it for now. I can forgive sloppy. What I will not tolerate is you presuming to speak on behalf of this family. Let me be perfectly clear again. Any notion you may hold about being next in line to take over our business interests is a pathetic delusion. End of discussion. Yeah, I think I think between uh, between his scenes with Jack Quaid as uh, Alberto, and then uh, you know getting to interact with Troy Baker's Joker, with uh, with uh, and with Batman and some of the other mobsters, I think uh, I think Mr. Welliver gets a lot to do here, and he he does a good job of playing that that sort of aging aging mob boss that's trying to hold on to his power and all of that. So yeah, I think he does a, a very good job there, and then 
sort of rapid fires we're wrapping up here we got uh, we have alistair duncan uh, reprising his role as alfred he previously had played the character on the the batman cartoon and uh, a couple other animated projects as well uh, i like him i mean it's uh you know we we know who hashtag my alfred is on the show obviously from zimbalist jr on batman the animated series is uh, you know, is is still sort of the gold standards. But uh, as far as uh, other actors that have have played that Alfred role uh, since, uh, I think Mr. Duncan is is pretty easily my number one. Yeah, he's really really good. It feels very authentically Alfred. I think his interactions with Bruce, as I mentioned, that first interaction and that that dialogue between. Uh, between him where he says we have to we have to endeavor to lift it up again uh just just great and then of course there's some later on there's some banter between him and him and batman on the uh the the com link and and on the uh the batmobile screen and uh, even a little bit of interaction between alfred and selena kyle at thanksgiving with some comedy thrown in so uh yeah there's some some good dialogue there he's really really good uh would definitely receive my vote for a uh for future casting in whatever uh, medium it is because uh, he's he's a really good solid alfred mm-hmm. yeah it's a good good warmth to him especially when he's when he's talking to batman there that really do feel like that fatherly side of of, of, of his relationship with batman um but yeah speaking of that we will be wrapping up here with our last few actors here we have um josh dumal playing harvey Dent, which people know him from transformers or more recently in the jupiter's legacy netflix show yeah he's really good um very talented actor i would say um I, i'm a fan of his run on the nbc uh, evening soap opera las vegas it was a james con ah. show back in the day i uh, thought he was he was fun on that was a, uh, that was an enjoyable role for him but yeah i'm a fan of of mr dumel's uh, acting and i think that uh, he puts in a good a good day's work here as harvey especially as we we kind of get this a constant allusion to him being of two minds and uh you know it's, it's done not quite with a wink to the audience but you obviously know where it's headed i we didn't get to talk about it but they even do a, a sort of visual trick after the house is blown up and harvey is in the hospital bed he's kind of half in shadow and you're almost suspecting that it's going to reveal that he's been you know, viciously scarred and as he escapes the hospital and jim gordon chases him down later he kind of pulls him aside and you finally see the other half of Harvey and he just has a couple scratches on him. It's not completely disfigured as you might expect. So I, I did appreciate the teases, not only visually, but then you know, some of the discussions that he, he has with Batman in that initial scene when they're deciding whether or not to, to burn the money. And then, uh, you know, as he's talking with, with uh, Gilda later on, you know, he sort of covers half of his face and talks about his, you know, his, his struggles and trying to, to meet her in her mental angst and clearly it seems not being able to have children and her disappointment with that and almost constantly reminding her that they can start a family and not being able to, to uh, have kids of her own. So, Yeah, I think that's, that is a big part of it. Is, you know, And that's a theme that we often see in, I think, in Batman stories and superhero stories is you're fighting these, these monsters, you know, fight monsters for so long and you be it's it's the dark night line right it's the you you die the hero or you live long enough to become the villain and that that's sort of him him sort of going down this path where he's fighting dirty against dirty opponents and how how dirty can you get before it uh you know before 
you're just as dirty as they are. That's definitely a theme. And uh, yeah, Mr. Mel's uh, performance as, uh, as Harvey Dent here definitely helps tell that story. And then uh, wrapping up, we have Naya Rivera, uh, sadly the, the late Naya Rivera as Catwoman. Um, folks would probably know her best from her role on Glee, um, but she uh, very tragically drowned uh, uh, about a year, a little over a year ago. And I believe this will be her last, uh, last credited role will be, uh, well, this and, and part two of this. Um, uh, I think she's a good cat. Obviously the, the loss of life is, is it, it's not tragic because she can't play Catwoman anymore. Obviously it's tragic because a, a very young woman who, was a mother uh, lost her life, but, uh, but yeah, obviously it's, uh, I, I think for, for whatever it is worth in, in the context of what we're reviewing, uh, I, I like her Catwoman. I like, I, I like her, her interplay and her dialogue, especially with, uh, with Batman. And I, I think, she, I think she brought, you know, uh, kind of an exciting life to the character. And that brings us to our Batman, uh, Mr. Jensen Ackles, who of course folks know from supernatural. And uh, of course, uh, Famously to this show, uh, a performance you did not care for um, in the Batman Under the Red Hood movie as Jason Todd, a.k.a. the Red Hood, um, but that uh, everyone else seems to just adore and wants him to play play, play that character in live action, which I, I don't think is going to happen anytime soon, but... But uh, but yes, Jensen Ackles here as Batman. And I will say this. I think he has that, you know, if you've ever heard him talk, if you ever watched Supernatural, he has that sort of growly, gravelly voice to him, to you know, his natural way of speaking. And I think that fits Batman better maybe than it fits a a a more animated or, or excitable character. Like, you know, the red hood is kind of supposed to, you know, especially by the end of that movie. And I, and I do think that that final scene in under the red hood is he does a, a pretty good job there, but uh, I know, I know you weren't thrilled with that performance, but I guess I'll, so I'll, I guess I'll, I'll pose this as more of a question. Is he a better Batman than he was a, uh, a Robin or a red hood? Unequivocally. Yes, absolutely. I think <laughs> there are times that in this, uh, in this, I would say that his performance is uneven at times. It's a little flat in some areas. His dialogue as Batman, I think is, is where, uh, depending on the scene is not as strong. I think his performance as Bruce is actually, is actually stronger than his performance as Batman. Unfortunately, we don't get a whole lot of Bruce, but uh, this mm-hmm. that we get between him and Alfred, uh, as we mentioned, him kind of putting the the pieces of the puzzle together, and then in addition to that, you know, some of some of his interactions with Falcone at, at, at the party, or his interactions with, even with with Selena, um, I think are they're they're good, and I, I think that his uh, his interaction with Troy Baker's Joker, I think, is probably the strongest portion of the Batman dialogue. It's uneven at times, but I think I like him better as batman his delivery is is different uh than his delivery as as uh as jason todd slash the red hood from under the red hood um and i think it suits it it just fits him a little bit better i think maybe maybe this he's got he's had a few different roles under his belt now doing doing voice acting maybe he's a little bit Mm -hmm. uh, a little bit more seasoned in the in the ability to do that it's a little less wooden at times and it feels a little bit a little less like he's reading off of a of a script as he's delivering things so uh, i would say a a major improvement over what i felt like was a lackluster performance in the 
Red Hood, uh, under the Red Hood film, which you can hear our review of that in the archives at DCAUreview.com as well, if you're interested. But uh, yeah, I, I, I think that this was a, a much better performance overall. Uh, still uneven at times, but, uh, but solid, I guess is what I would say. Yeah, I think that's, I think that covers a lot of it. Um, yeah, I, I don't think he's great by any means, but I think, yes, I definitely think he's better suited for Batman and, and does have moments where I think he's genuinely very good, both in the, some of those interactions with Naya Rivera as Catwoman and with, with Troy Baker's Joker and, and with Alistair Duncan as, uh, as, as Alfred. So yeah, overall, I think a, a pretty darn strong voice cast, maybe not a, uh, like a superstar breakout performance, but uh, a lot of really good solid work being put in. And again, this is a part one, you're laying the foundation for, for what's to come still. So uh, altogether, I ended up settling on another eight out of 10 for my voice acting score. Nice. Uh, I gave it just a tick lower. I gave it a seven out of 10. Um, I think that there's not, not one performance that I say was outstanding. Um, I think that there are some good performances, nothing super great. Um, and uh, I'm interested to see when we know that there are more rogues uh, from the rogues gallery coming in part two and certainly what appears to be at least by the cover art for part two, a transformation of Harvey Dent into Two-Face, uh, what the voice acting looks like in part two uh, from some of these same actors as well as additional actors in part two. So looking forward to hearing that next week, but uh, still a, a solid score from both of us, a uh, higher end, just a tick higher from you, but uh, nonetheless, good scores all the way around here. So, all right, Liam, let's uh, tallying up our scores here. Uh, I end up with a... Uh, pretty solid i guess you would give it a a final score of 29 out of 40 what about you pretty strong final score of the actually the exact same i also have a 29 out of 40 there we go a little little math on the run there we were both doing math in our heads so uh yeah we had, um, <laughs> ended up coming up with the same same score there um it's hard to talk about this again we we kind of already alluded to this in a vacuum um, I think that this is going to have to be a, a to be determined, a TBD as far as is this a rewatchable one or not, because it does really hinge on mm -hmm. part two, uh, you know, and how how well part two is executed. And um, I, I would defer to you as a fan of of this comic book and, and a bigger fan of the comic book of the original source material. But it sounds like to me, as, as you kind of already alluded to that, this wouldn't necessarily stand up on its own as a, as a must watch. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah. I, I think there's enough moments sort of homage from the graphic novel and the, and it's kept faithful enough that if you're a big fan of this, of, of the, of the graphic novel of the, the mini series um, or I guess maxi series as it would be called um, in comic book lingo. Yeah. I think this is worth a watch on that side, but yeah, as far as like a, as far as it's standing alone, you know, how does it stand by itself as a movie? Like you said, it's really probably going to depend on, on how part two uh, leaves us feeling next week. So that's our own little cliffhanger um, for, for you to come back next week and find out if, if indeed part one gets the thumbs up for rewatchability based on perhaps how its conclusion in part two is dealt with. 
Very excited to do that. All right, Liam. Well, let's wrap up this week's episode. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. You will not want to miss next week's exciting conclusion. First time we've said that, Liam, to be continued uh, in the history (laughs) of the DCAU review here. Follow up uh, next week and uh, hear our thoughts on part two of Batman The Long Halloween. Looking forward to doing that with you. Don't forget, follow us on social media at DCAU Review, both on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, Lots of exciting stuff going on in the world of the DCAU. We have some comic reviews coming up, both uh, the next issue of Justice League Infinity, as well as Batman The Adventures Continue, both raging towards their final conclusions, at least for this season, at least. So exciting stuff going on there. Of course, uh, once we get past part two, we'll be talking about what we'll be discussing for the month of November and uh, ultimately December we have coming up here. Lots of good stuff on the calendar ahead of us, Liam. Uh, very excited though. Don't forget uh, subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app, whatever you're listening to, if it allows you to give a five-star review and uh, a little paragraph about what it is that you like about us. We would very much appreciate that. You can also support us if you wish by uh, purchasing a hat or a shirt. Um, also at the bottom of our podcast, you should see a little link that says support this podcast. So if you just want to support the podcast we i literally we had a message from somebody this week liam on on uh on in our dms that said yeah i don't i didn't want a shirt i didn't want a hat so it was nice just to be able to throw a couple bucks your guys way so that was very kind of them we appreciate all of our supporters and uh whether you whether you throw throw a couple dollars our way or maybe you just uh support us with a follow as we mentioned follow us on social media Uh, you can also subscribe to us on the pod tower that's right we're on youtube our full catalog is there as well not only do you get content from us but you get content from our friends over at the watchtower database as well as tim talk both podcasts that discuss not only dcau but uh, all things dc animated so you'll find lots of content uh, from them also on that channel subscribe to that that helps us out also liam very excited to get for the exciting conclusion of next week as we get into part two uh, but until then i'm cal and i'm liam and we'll talk to you on the next episode of the dcau review adios